our scripture this morning. We are in 2 Peter, going through that right now. We're in the first chapter. We're going to begin in verse 16 and go through verse 21. That is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through verse 21 uh, in your pew Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, uh, you can open up your pew Bible to read along. It's on page 1207 in the pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. We want you to take it uh, with you when you leave. We believe in the power of God's word, and we want you to have that with you. Again, it's 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. And there it's written, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, by the Holy Spirit. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. If you would join me in prayer. O holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we can generate a list, if we wanted to, of things that Americans don't do well or, or that we, we, we don't really handle the transition of, right? Like there's a refusal of Americans to call soccer football, right? That, that's on the list. Internationally, that, that's on the list. They're very upset with us. Um, but I say put our best football team against their best soccer team and see who wins, right? You get the right to call football. But, but there's other things we don't handle well. Like we don't handle being delayed well, right? Like, we, we don't welcome it as an interruption, and, and in fact, it's more of an aggravation, and there's video evidence of proof of this, right? There, there's videos out there when a flight gets delayed of, of people getting irate with customer service agents in the airports, right? Absolutely losing their mind. How, what do you mean the plane's not leaving in 20 minutes like it was scheduled to do so? Don't you know I have somewhere important to be, somewhere I need to be you're unaware of? I mean, it happens also when we go to a doctor's office, right? We, we set the appointment at 3.30. It invariably happens that it's 4.17 before they walk in our room. And we're like, hey, I'm, I'm important too. I've got, a, I've got places to go, things to do. Or, or when we make a reservation for a night out and we have a date. And, and so we get a reservation at a nice restaurant. And we show up and our table's not ready on time. What good is a reservation if your table's not ready at the reserved time? We, we just don't do well with delays and, and with waiting. Our culture simply doesn't like to wait. I mean, we have very much turned into a world filled of Veruca salts. So, 
So if you don't understand that reference, she's a young woman in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. She's the one who, as they're touring the Chocolate Factory, she goes, I want an Oompa Loompa, Daddy, and I want it now, right? That, and that's kind of where we've landed in life. We're Veruca Salt. We find something we want, and we want it now. I mean, we all have Amazon Prime memberships, and when it's not getting to us in two days, we're like, Shh, I'm not buying that. I'll buy something else that'll get here sooner. When we want something, we want it now, whatever it is. But the truth is, this waiting that we do is we wait less today than any group of people in human history has ever had to wait for anything. We have high-speed internet. I, I remember as a kid, and, and this will surprise some of you younger than this, but there was a time when people came by, instead of selling you the internet, before the internet, they sold you books called encyclopedias, and you never opened them, but you had a set that sat on the bookshelf, and the bookshelf just bowed down. And that was our internet before the internet existed. And then when the internet did come around, you had to put the CD in the drive, and you had to have the phone connection. And you only got like 600 hours. It was, it was crazy. Now we have high-speed internet. We, we get frustrated because... When we're on a streaming service, all of a sudden a commercial pops up and we're like, oh, it's the long ad. This one's going to take a minute and a half, right? <laughs> it's not even the 30-second break. We, we don't do good with this waiting, and, and we don't know how to wait. We're not accustomed to waiting, right? comes through on everything. We don't enjoy waiting for anything or anyone including God. We've been there. Waiting and trusting in the Lord is tough. We've had that prayer that, that was urgent. We needed an answer to or a response from God right away. It, it, it was there, and it was so urgent. God, I need to hear from you now. I need this settled right now. We begin making these demands of God, and then... When the answer doesn't come and the response isn't as quick as we would hope, we get disappointed and frustrated, maybe even a bit dismissive of, of God and whether or not he cares for us. But that's not God's problem, that's our problem. We don't know how to wait. God knows how to wait. God knows how to wait because he's waited on us our whole lives. God's patience is, is infinite. His patience with us, right? He, he calls us out of our sin and calls us to himself, and yet invariably we keep going back to our sin. We keep wandering off. We don't put it to death, and we keep getting distracted and tempted by our sin and by the devil. And yet scripture tells us God is patient with us that he does not leave us nor forsake us. Patient like the father of the prodigal son, patiently waiting for the day that his young son will return and he clothes him as family once again. We don't know how to wait. It's not something we're good at, but it's something we're called to. 
I've mentioned before that the, the writers in the New Testament, these apostles, Peter and Paul, James and John and the others, they, they held to this belief that Jesus was going to return. And it wasn't some far-off thought that one day Jesus is going to return. It was that Jesus' return is imminent, that it is, that it is very soon. And, and so when they write these letters to other churches and to other Christians, they're writing these letters with the instructions because there's a belief Jesus will return soon. And with Jesus' re, Jesus's return comes the judgment of the living and of the dead. And so Peter's writing this letter, and, and he knows that there's new teachers that are coming out because the apostles are dying off. And new teachers are coming out, and Peter's going to write against false teachers. And, and, and the falsehood that they're teaching is that, hey, what is all of this dark talk of, of Jesus coming again and judging the living and the dead? I mean, this has to be false. Look at the apostles. They're dying. And there's no sign of Jesus even remotely coming close to returning again. This, this isn't a true teaching of theirs. This is a falsehood that they began to teach. Because they wanted to get into this space that, that God is... God is love, and, and he's going to forgive you of everything, and so you just need to go live your best life now. Go chase after your dreams. However you have to get there, go and do that. Whatever makes you happy, that's what you need to do in life. Rather than doing whatever presents yourself holy before God. Rather than waiting and trusting that the Lord, he's coming again and there is a final judgment. We're going to have to give an account to the lives that we have lived. The scripture tells us that. And we don't give much thought to it. And we say, yeah, Jesus is coming again. We, we all sang the song joyfully. Even so, come Lord Jesus, come. But we didn't give much thought to it. Not in our daily lives. Because that might bring some worry and anxieties about, oh, well, now I'm going to have to give an account for my life. We might be more cautious in our way of living, might take more seriously this walk with Jesus that we've done. Instead, we've pushed it off as this far-off thing of Jesus coming, you know, I'm, he's probably not coming in my lifetime or my kid's lifetime. He's probably coming in my great, 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 great grandkid's lifetime, right? One day, Jesus is going to come. But I'll deal with that when it happens. And essentially what we're saying at that time is that the day we meet Jesus and we have to give an account for our lives, we're going to have to say, yeah, Jesus, no, I believe you died for my sins and you were resurrected. I believe in that. I believe in your word. But I just thought I could go ahead and do whatever I wanted until I came up here and met you. And when you put it that way, it doesn't sound as good as we thought it did when we were living it. And so we want Jesus, if he's going to return, we want it now. We want instant gratification. And, and this comes from our sin nature. And so when these false teachers emerge in, in the first century around Peter and around the church, they're, they're saying, look, Jesus hasn't come yet. He's not, there's no signs of him ever coming. The apostles are dying off. This whole thing's kind of coming to an end 
And not in the way Jesus talked about it, it seems like. So this desire for this instant gratification comes from our sin nature. The false teachers had it too. So much so that this rejection of the second coming of Christ and, and comes from that sin. That A, clearly Jesus isn't coming anytime soon. There's no signs of it. We can look around the world today and be like, oh, there's signs of Jesus' return. We can read that into Scripture, and there's other times we can read into Scripture. Nope, this isn't at all what the Scripture was talking about in Jesus' return. But ultimately, we want to dismiss the notion that everyone, including ourselves, will be held accountable for the moral and ethical infidelities we've lived out in this life. We just want it all glanced over and washed over as if we're not ever going to have to talk about it with Jesus, but scripture is clear. When Jesus does return, there is a final judgment of the living and of the dead. We'll be in one of those two categories when he returns. But it shouldn't surprise us that there's false teachers in the first century. It shouldn't surprise us that we hold the same desires that people in the first century held of wanting resolution to everything now instead of having to wait. You would think they would be better at waiting for things. They didn't have high-speed internet in the first century. But still, the world is full of teachers and leaders and influencers willing to tell you that you're free to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want, without fear of divine punishment. But be careful. It's not what scripture says. It's not what the word of God says. So we don't put much thought into Jesus's coming again and his judgment because truthfully, if we did, it would radically change our lives and how we live. And we would rather remain ignorant to Jesus's return and his second coming because it allows us a false security to live as we please. So Peter's writing this letter, and he knows these false teachers are out there, and there's arguments against what Peter is teaching, and he wants us to know that everything he taught, including Jesus's return rested not on a fable or a fairy tale. It wasn't some myth or legend, but it rests on the strength of scripture itself. For he argues that no prophecy comes from someone's own interpretation and no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. And he goes on to say that every word written by men in the book of scripture comes by the power of the Holy Spirit alone. So it's God's word. It's trustworthy for us. And by writing this, what Peter is declaring is, is, is he understands the apostles are dying off. They're dying off and, and, they're, and they're being martyred for the gospel. Not that Jesus died for our sins and rose again and ascended to heaven, but also the very teaching that Jesus is returning again. They die for these teachings, for this truth. But he declares that in this post-apostolic age, that after the apostles are gone, that what we have to rely on is the living and written word of God as our sole authority for life. 
And in doing so, Peter also begins to give his testimony. He says, I was an eyewitness with Jesus. And he tells us the story of the transfiguration here in this letter about going on top of the holy mountain. And with him were James and John, the other apostles. And as Jesus was there and transfigured, Elijah and Moses stood on either side of him and they heard from this great voice of God, the majestic glory declare, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But I wasn't there. Right? How much easier would it be to believe if they had, you know, cell phone camera footage of, of the transfiguration? Well, then I would know for certain, right? A lot of us would say that. If there is video evidence, there, there'd be no denying that. Or surely someone would come up and say, you know how easy it is to doctor videos these days? That's why Paul writes, when he writes to the Corinthians in his second letter, and he says, for we live by faith, not by sight. We didn't see or hear it. Peter did. James and John did. They were there, and, and they're trustworthy eyewitnesses. We, we trust them. They were around Jesus. It, it's there in accounts. They testify to it and willing to die for it, and men are not willing to die for a lie. But Peter still knows they'll argue against him, even though he's an eyewitness. So again, he points to Scripture. Verse 19, he writes, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Right? There's, there's Deuteronomy that points to the second coming of Christ. There's Joel and Amos and Zechariah. The Old Testament scriptures point to a second coming of Christ. And there's Jesus himself that declares, I am coming again. And on the day he ascends in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, he ascends to the heavens. And there the angels look at the disciples and say, Men of Galilee, why are you looking up? For he will return in the same way that he left. We weren't there, but we have the words written down from long ago, and they are a sure light. For seeing isn't essential for believing, but reading God's word is. So there is a coming final judgment, a return of Jesus. And it's not the stuff of fairy tales or legends. Jesus himself testifies to it, just as he testified to his own death and resurrection earlier in Scripture. But rather, it is truth found within the promise of God who is faithful to all of his promises. I don't know what everyone in here has been taught over the years about what it will be like on the day when Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Perhaps you have questions about what was written so long ago. And I often have questions too, but, but don't dismiss it. Don't wholesale write it off, for believing Jesus will come again is vital to a living faith. It's the faith of Paul and Peter and James and John and the other apostles. It's the faith of the early church. 
It's the faith of the church through the ages. Don't scoff at it. Don't treat it as something minor or inconsequential that, you know, Jesus' return, it's so far off, I really don't have to think about it because I'm not going to be around to see it. But you see, it's the same God who promised to save you from your sins, who died on the cross shedding the blood of his son Jesus, who would three days later be resurrected and ascend to the right hand of God, that God that promised your salvation is the same one who promises the Messiah will come again. Promise that Jesus will return and he will judge the living and the dead. And then after this judgment is over, what John tells us in Revelation is that our goal as Christians isn't to get to heaven. It's not the purpose of any of this. The purpose of faith is that we get God, right? It, right? We get a relationship with our maker, with our creator, the God of the universe, the one who saved us and loved us, the king of all kings, the prince of all prince. We get to re, be redeemed and adopted as sons of daughters and enjoy what Adam and Eve first enjoyed in paradise for eternity. And so after Jesus comes and the final judgment occurs, we are told that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And that we will be citizens in a new Jerusalem, enjoying God's presence forevermore. And there at the end of our Bible, it's written, He who testifies to these things, which is Jesus, says, Surely I am coming soon. So we join in that prayer, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen? Amen. Amen. This morning.